Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. Hi, Anna Greta, and hi to everyone listening. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Anna Greta, what a great conversation we had last week. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been going over it in my mind, and I've read through Millie's report a few times as well, and I've had conversations with all sorts of people and recommending that that work. Um, Such important stuff and such an amazing place to start our series on valuing care. Yes, it absolutely was. And for people who who missed that episode, we were talking with Millie Rooney from Australia Remade on some really interesting ideas about how we put care at the centre based on a, a lot of conversation that she's had with people around Australia. It's really inspirational stuff. What actually might matter to us and what sort of things we might like to try and achieve. It, quite an extraordinary work on the, the public good from Australia Remade. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going to promote it. It's a, been just an extraordinary read. So Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The Crawford School offers a wide range of different public policy-related programs, ranging from public administration to climate change to international development to integrity and anti-corruption, all issues that I know are of great interest to our listenership. You can find out more by visiting crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So, Sharon, today is the second episode in our Valuing Care mini-series. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, it, it is um, the next instalment of, of this series. And, you know, our regular listeners know that care is a theme that emerges in almost every episode of the pod. Um, and, Anna Greta, it comes up in every conversation that we have when we're planning the next episode of the pod. And given this, we've decided that it really is time to shine a light on how we think very deeply about care as a guiding principle for policy and as a means of providing a compass for the rocky times that we're navigating globally. So this week, we want to analyse Australia's recent federal budget through the lens of care. There are many ways to think about care. As Anna Greta and I have talked through this mini-series, we've identified three layers of care that really matter. And each of those layers need to inform policy thinking and decision-making. 
at the personal level, each of us needs care at different times across our lives and care of different types depending on where we are in our lives. And this includes things like social protection, healthcare, knowledge, both formal education and informal intergenerational knowledge sharing, freedom from violence, dignity and time and connection with others. And then at the next layer, we have the infrastructure of care. In last week's episode, Millie Rooney, um, who's from Australia Remade and has done that amazing work that we were just discussing, talks so powerfully about this idea of the infrastructure of care. In the result of the dialogues that Millie and Australia Remade has had with people around Australia, it was clear that people wanted physical infrastructure, but they also wanted the infrastructure that supports human interaction and connection with people. And in this mini-series, we're taking that idea and aiming to explore the infrastructure of care, things like systems of distribution, services, healthcare, aged care, education, childcare, that are universally available or should be universally available, should be high quality, should be not-for-profit. And we're also thinking about things like time, protections from abuse and exploitation at work and in other parts of life, gender equality, recognition of First Nations people's knowledge and systems, and of course intergenerational equity and inequity. And the third layer that is critical for care is care of planet and place. And here we're thinking about environment, biodiversity, endangered species, which we discussed just a couple of episodes ago on the pod with the CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation, Kelly O'Shaughnessy. And we're thinking about things like adaptation of economies on a large scale and a duty of care to future generations as issues that are really central. So we're very excited about this mini-series and we'll be talking through each of those layers of care with people who can help us to calibrate our compass um, and we know it's an ambitious agenda that we have, but these are conversations that we really want to have. And today, as I said, we're going to turn the spotlight on the federal budget. There's been a great deal of commentary and analysis over the past week, but how does the budget fare when we subject it to the lens of care? And so to talk through these issues, we've got two fabulous guests and two old friends of the pod who joined us in our post-budget conversation last year. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce and welcome our two amazing guests for this week? Sharon, it's an absolute delight to introduce our two fabulous guests. We have with us John Falzon, a sociologist, poet and social justice advocate, senior fellow in inequality and social justice at Per Capita. He was previously the national CEO of the St Vincent de Paul Society. And alongside John is Casey Chambers. Casey is the executive director of Anglicare Australia, a network of 45 agencies, 38,000 staff and volunteers working with over 502,000 clients across Australia. An accomplished CEO with extensive national experience in government and the community sector, she's previously worked at Uniting Care Australia, the Australian Government Department of Family, Community Services and Indigenous Affairs, YWCA of Canberra, and the Australian Council of Social Services. It's such a delight to have you with us, John and Casey. Thanks for being here today. Thanks very much. Thanks, Anna Greta. It's great to be here. Sure is. I think the obvious place to start with this conversation today is asking you both to reflect on your overall impressions of the federal budget. Who would like to go first? Casey? Okay, lovely. Um, I suspect we're not going to differ too much, but uh, maybe just pick on different bits. Look, 
probably four headlines, expensive and ill-targeted, thinking specifically there about the fuel excise and not targeted better to those people who, um, you know, would get more out of that and who perhaps have to travel further. A lot of one-offs, again, failed to recognise that the cost of living is ongoing, uh, no help with job seeker there. And even in the, some of the taxation stuff, again, ill-targeted, really a bit of a one-off, not as good as something around secure, um, you know, employment, that kind of thing. And basically a bit of a, a lost opportunity for, for the kind of leadership that um, we think the, the Australian public's crying out for. And in fact, our own polling did show that that was the case. That's a great place to start. John, any other thoughts? Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree with everything Casey said. I think she's bang on, you know, particularly the the emphasis on one-off fixes. Uh, we all know that one-off fixes are, not, are no fixes at all. Uh, you know, they're like Band-Aids on a gaping wound. And the gaping wound is, of course, um, the fact that increasing number of people, whether they're in paid work or not, are unable to afford the essentials of life. So, you know, this year's budget, it, what, what it reminded me of, to be honest, was it's a bit like that that last lolly bag at the party, the one with the bottom falling out of it. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not only joyless but useless and gutless because <laughs> it promises everything and contains next to nothing. Yeah, un- unless you systematically lift wages and social security payments, uh, we're not going to get anywhere near building that kind of architecture of fairness. Uh, And as Casey pointed out, there was no move on job seeker payments. And despite the promises that wages are going to go up, uh, there was nothing substantial there that was actually targeting uh, an increase in wages. So, you know, it was all about relief, but, you know, you don't give relief to households when you leave 3 million people living below the poverty line or nearly a million people having to work multiple jobs or leaving people in insecure work. John, I I love that imagery of the last party bag left at the party and people kind of scrambling for it only to be very disappointed when they get their hands on it. But let's let's kind of go into the the specifics a little bit and to pick up on this issue that that you both raised of you know the short term announcement of addressing cost of living pressures through that that once only $250 payment for, for welfare recipients. I won't ask what you, you made of that because I think it's probably quite clear what you, you think about that from the comments that you've just made. But what would you like to have seen as an alternative to that one-off payment for welfare recipients? How would you like to have seen the government come at their thinking around welfare benefits in, in particular? Casey, would you like to, to kick off with that? Yes, yeah. So, look, it, it's it's no secret that the income support, particularly job seeker, is just way too low. We've got evidence that, you know, people can't afford housing, they can't afford food. We know it's fallen way behind. It's been 1997 since there was any real increase. We had that beautiful accidental experiment where we doubled it for six months. So we've got every piece of evidence that we can think of. It's simply not enough. And if we are going to um, look at the cost of living, then we really need to be saying, okay, we've got to get income support right the way up to, this is really sad to say this, but we've got to get it up 
to the poverty line. You know, it's ridiculous that we've got, I think it's 3.25 million people, including a million children, living below the poverty line. Now, when I look at my geography, that would be, if we put all those people in one place, that would be the third biggest city in Australia. That's how many people we've got living below the poverty line. So that's where we have to start. We agree it's a big it's a big cost, but there are lots of other big costs hidden in this budget or, or whacked out there in this budget. And of course, the other thing is that by actually putting decent income support out there, or we would actually go a step further and say um, a permanent basic income, you actually save a lot of money as well. Well, we shouldn't really be talking about this just as um, money in and money out. You actually give your citizens a decent life and a decent chance at participating and contributing to the society. Mm. And I think we'll return to some of the issues that uh, that come from the ideas of basic income later in the pod today. But we thought we might talk a little bit about work. An important aspect of having care at an individual level is having access to work with a decent pay and decent conditions. The Australian unemployment rate in February 2022 was around 4%, the lowest in over a decade. But some have raised concerns that the federal government may not be able to be doing enough or isn't doing enough on wages, which are not expected to grow until late 2022 at best and, and perhaps not even then. The Australian Council of Trade Unions said that government, the government is missing in action on wages growth. So, John, what would you like to see from the government in this area? Well, for a start, when you've got a minimum wage case, um, you don't, as a government, oppose uh, a decent lift to the minimum wage. The very obvious thing uh, that a government can do is to stop the kind of draconian legislation that provides every obstacle under the sun to working people organised through the union movement to bargain for higher wages and better conditions. And thirdly, you would really step in and stop this absolutely devastating trajectory uh, of the the growth of of insecure jobs, uh, which have been so structured into the labour market over time uh, that, of course, they are going to result in net Uh, losses for wages in real terms. They're designed in such a way as to bring about deliberate cuts in paying conditions. And I I would argue they're actually designed by the big end of town and dutifully delivered by your classic neoliberal government. So, you know, if if a government is accelerating that trajectory, they can't do that on one hand and on the other say, yeah, we're all in favour of of higher wages. The other thing, of course, is the government is, as a major employer, uh, has it within its remit to, uh, to do something about wages growth within the Commonwealth Public Service. And we know, of course, that this is is profoundly interconnected with uh, wages growth or uh, you know, a decline in wages in the private sector. So, you know, at the moment, if you're on an average wage on the government's own figures, we're anticipating that you will take a, a cut in real terms of around five hundred dollars uh, in the coming year. So. You know, there, there is much that can be done rather than adopting the, uh, the, the policy of just let's leave it to the market because we know very well that where big businesses particularly are able to keep uh, wages as low as possible 
uh, and prices as high as possible and government subsidies and, uh, and, and infrastructural support as generous as possible, as long as it's only to them, then that's going to be the best outcome in the short term for their uh, bottom line. John, I, I just wanted to pick up on the point you made about growing precarious work and more and more people being brought into these really insecure arrangements and where we see almost layers of management involved in hiring people. So you have a hiring company who will hire people for for casual work who then kind of subcontracts to the next layer and then to the the person who's actually wanting the work done. I think this is is so problematic, um, particularly for people who are really desperate for the work and are not in a position to be able to make too many complaints about the conditions. But but John, I'd, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on what we need to do to start shifting what has been such a rise in this precarious work and in working arrangements that place people in these really insecure situations, you know, zero-hour contracts and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, for a start, the way our labour market has been structured and has been encouraged by uh, neoliberal governments such as the one we have at present means that insecure work arrangements are not only tolerated, but um, why wouldn't uh, you know, some employers opt for that when it, it means lower wage costs? Now, Many would say, in fact, that that's not good business sense in the long term because insecure work also means a, a less stable workforce and, uh, you know, that means sometimes uh, a skills deficit because, you know, you're, you're not providing the kind of stable work environment where people can develop skills and be retained by an employer. So, you know, it, I don't really believe it's good economic sense in the long term, but in the short term, it, it lowers the cost of labour. But, you know, the cost of labour is, of course, the ability to make a living from the, the worker's perspective. So it's not just the legislative frameworks. Uh, as I said, it means allowing civil society uh, and particularly the union movement in this case to be able to do their job, which is to allow working people to collectively bargain without being penalised. We know there are so many penalties involved at the moment when uh, a group of workers, for instance, uh, you know, might want to take industrial action, which has become so rare for, for obvious reasons. The other area, of course, is not just government employment, which a lot of that has become insecure through the contracting out and you know, outsourcing within the public service, which is just scandalous, the uh, the degree to which that's happened. And, and on that note, I observed in this budget that for Services Australia, 2,719 jobs were cut. Yeah, of all places, Services Australia, you know, where, which we, we so desperately have relied on, not just through the pandemic, but, you know, you think of, uh, you know, the recent floods, you know, it's an absolute cornerstone of a good society to have good, that, that kind of good social infrastructure. And we've just cut 9.4% of their, of their total workforce. So not only in, in direct employment, but also in procurement, also in funding arrangements that uh, Commonwealth Government is engaged in. You can build in, you can structure in requirements and incentives for secure jobs. It's a political decision that has been abrogated by the current government and has been left to the market. 
Casey, you might note that the government's celebrating this 4% unemployment rate. What are your thoughts on unemployment as a target? Look, I I think we need to stop talking about the government's unemployment rate. We know that um, it is a very skewed measure. Uh, I'm sure that most of the people listening to this podcast would know that you are classified as employed if you have undertaken an hour or more paid or unpaid work in the previous fortnight. So I think we need to put that to bed. The real unemployment rate, which is, you know, Roy Morgan has a poke at, or when I say that, you know, it's, it's uh, the methodology is a bit too long to go into here, but they're looking at about 14%. We know from the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence's Youth Employment, Youth Unemployment Monitor that that's about 11.8% for young people. And again, much worse in um, rural or specific areas. So I think we really do need to quiz that unemployment rate. I think the other stat that I wanted to talk about or the other fact that I wanted to talk about now, I wanted to just discuss the experience of us, of our services on the ground as angry care workers. I am shocked and horrified by a statistic I found a little while ago, and I'm shocked and horrified that more people don't know it. So in 2018, the ABS noted that we had, the seesaw had a swung, if you like. I think there's a mixed metaphor there. We from there on had fewer people in Australia in employment who had entitlements to leave than we had people with it. So now over half of employed people in Australia do not have any entitlements to leave. And of course, we saw that come out during COVID. We saw people have to go to work. We saw people, I guess, um, you know, need to risk the public health. So that really is pretty abysmal. And it does mean that we've got a very precarious workforce that is really on the periphery. But the last point I just wanted to make on this is um, we're certainly seeing in our Anglicare services where we've got what's known as emergency relief, where people who really can't make the weekly budget meet um, their needs, they come in for assistance. Now, 20 years ago, that would have been people a bit down on their luck and or on welfare. We're now seeing that a, a good two thirds sometimes of those people are working people. And what that's doing is allowing the big businesses to pay smaller wages and the Australian taxpayer actually subsidising their profits. We've got to just look, that is an absolute cost shift and it's a subsidisation of big business profits. We're talking on this mini-series of of the pod that this episode's a part of about care and how we value care. And what both of you have just mapped is such a horrifying landscape that is completely absent of care. You know, no care for people who are working, no people care for people who are contributing to society, and no care for people when they're in situations where they can't work and need support. And this, you know, I think is such a, a terrible indictment on where we find ourselves in Australia at the moment. I guess the other area where care is falling terribly short is in relation to the aged care sector and and looking after the elderly in our, in our society, in our community. The budget included subsidies for education and training in that field, but the government hasn't taken any steps to ensure that wages increase. We saw something very different from the opposition in, in the budget response, of course. Casey, you've proposed some measures around the aged care workforce, including increasing minimum age for aged care workers and the establishment of a workforce fund. Can you talk us through your proposals and why they're necessary? 
sure. I think one of the first things we should say and, and point out is that there is currently a case in front of the Fair Work Commission, which is about the value of the work. So at the moment, the award rate for aged care workers is not much above the minimum wage. And and that's something when we're thinking about care that we really need to address. And we really need to say, is that really what our society thinks that care is worth? I mean, it is an incredible privilege to care for someone and to um, travel a journey with them, whether that's as a young person or whether that's an older person. But we actually do not remunerate it at all. So it is a work value case. We need to make sure that's funded. And realistically, you know, I, I'm not worried here about very rich people in their older age. They, they can buy their care and that's fantastic. We're really interested in those people who have had low income jobs, middle income jobs, people who've been homeless, you know, probably, probably the, the first three quintiles of that, of that income spectrum. What we see where where we've got um, those aged care workers, we've done some modelling and we can, you know, if we look at the average cost of rent, the average basket of goods, the, the, that kind of thing, um, we, we model a single woman, it's usually women, who is working full time. She would have just on $96 left after she paid for her rent and basic foods. But the really shocking one to me, so much so that I just went back and did these so, so many times and checked them and had other people check them. We modelled it for um, a single parent with one child and we found that that person would have $9.68 left at the end of the week. This is clearly not a wage that we can be asking people to survive on. And we're certainly seeing people leaving the industry, um, and actually I really don't want to call it an industry, but leaving the sector because they can't afford to to pay their rent. We've got to be looking at this. Now, you know, I've been asked as I've been talking on the media about our report in the last couple of days, well, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, blah, blah, blah. No, it doesn't. But priorities can be chosen. And this is very clearly not a priority if we're not going to fund it. The Australian spending on aged care is below half the average OECD spending. So it's clearly something that we really need to um you know, be looking at and making sure too that those workers who are in this system and doing this kind of work are not just remunerated, but have a career path. Make sure that they're not some of those peripheral workers that I discussed in my last answer uh, and make sure that they, you know, have got training, have got career paths and uh, are remunerated properly for that work. And just before I finish, I must just give a big sing out to aged care workers because, you know, they really have been the heroes along with nurses. And, and medical staff of the COVID pandemic to date. Many of the people I know who work for Anglicare agencies or who I know who work for other aged care services, they've done double shifts. They've isolated away from their families. They've done everything they can to make this an understandable world for people who might have dementia and are new to a pandemic. They really have been the, the heavy lifters when you think about what they're paid. So, yeah, definitely something we, we have to act on. And I'd just like to uh, to jump in and endorse everything Casey's just said. I too have uh, spoken with with a number of aged care workers, and the thing that strikes me is that deeply, deeply distraught, no, not just about their own situation, which, which is just unforgivable that um, you know they are being remunerated and treated so poorly, but 
that they're distraught about the, the fact that they are unable to provide the kind of care that they want to to, uh, to, to the people that they're caring for, you know, because they're so poorly resourced and, um, and overstretched and they're going home crying uh, to their families because they're really upset seeing people suffer and it's not just in um, in residential aged care they you know they've been as Casey said they've been absolutely heroic and I think of um, the many um, you know involved in in community uh, home care packages uh, you know providing those kind of support to people have absolutely been crucial particularly uh, during the pandemic when uh, a lot of older people have um, really felt very isolated uh, but these workers have uh, have saved the day, uh, you know, for so many, and and yet as a society, we are, you know, we're basically saying that their value is less, which is just just so offensive and untrue. It is completely outrageous that rather than remunerating and valuing the care that people do, that we're expecting them to pay an incredibly high price, both financially and emotionally, in order to do that critical care. I think this is a moment where we'll, we'll take a break, gather our thoughts. It, it hasn't been the most uplifting conversation to, so far, but we will come back and continue to look at, at what the budget has offered us, particularly in, in terms of valuing care. So don't go away, listeners. We'll be back with John Falzon and Casey Chambers in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with John Falzon and Casey Chambers in the second episode of our mini-series on care, and we're talking about this year's federal budget. One of the criticisms of the budget has been from the Australian Council of Social Services, who argued that it is full of temporary measures and it doesn't provide the kinds of structural changes necessary in terms of addressing poverty, inequality and climate change. And I'm reflecting here on a conversation that we had last week with Millie Rooney. And in that conversation, we talked about what Millie refers to as the infrastructure of care. And all of these things that that ACOS point to could be called the structural measures that are needed to provide the infrastructure of care. We've talked a little bit about aged care, but I wanted to turn our attention now to housing There were plans announced to expand the first home buyers scheme, but very little for renters, despite there being major concerns about affordability and the impact that that has on intergenerational inequality and other kinds of inequality. 
Casey, in the forward to Anglicare's 2021 rental affordability survey, you wrote, it seems that even a global economic downturn has failed to make a dent in Australia's rental crisis. We must find permanent and structural solutions to make sure that every Australian has the income they need to find a home and to make sure that the homes are there to be found. I wanted to get both your thoughts on this, perhaps first to you, Casey. What sort of policy responses would you like to see to improve affordability, particularly for people who are renting? It's certainly the um, the Cinderella of housing is is the private rental market. And I think, I don't think I know that uh, the, the real foundation of that is because there's a mismatch between the policy provision and the thing that is needed from that policy. So the policy that provides for the private rental market is aimed at individual wealth gain, and yet the the speaking about it is says that it is there to provide affordable housing. Now, we just need to detach those two ideas and say, if it's about individual wealth gain, then great, get on with it, but don't pretend it's about housing, and then we'll all see for for what it is and we might want to wind that back and if it is about provision of affordable housing then let's make some of those tax benefits that flow to people who are investing in housing let's make them work for renters so one of the things I'd say about the budget is there were, there were very few mentions of housing. As you say, there was one small scheme. Having said that, if it was any bigger, we'd be jumping up and down and saying it would be inflationary. The only reason it's not inflationary is that there's so, such a small number of places on it. But a lot of the things that are in the budget that are quite big spending rely on housing. So, you know, you've got you've got quite a mental health spend. Um, most of it's for existing programs. You've also got what is called a women's safety spend. I really want to strangle that every time I hear it. It is not about women's safety people. It is about perpetrators' violence. So let's just, you know. But there is no point in putting those kind of services out if there is no housing for those people to go to. Similarly around aged care, you know, many people uh, find themselves in residential aged care a little bit earlier than perhaps they would want to be if they've been renters because it is very difficult to find a rental property that, you know, is accessible, that you are allowed to make modifications to, that you are secure within. So, you know, if you're 72 and you're on your own home and you've got some mobility difficulties or, or, you know, some difficulties in the shower or something, it's quite within your means to make those changes to the shower. In fact, the, the government will give a grant for that and you can have home care coming in. If you're 72 in the same situation and you're in a rental house, it can be very different, you know. The individual landlord, as is their their right, might want that house back. You find yourself moving much more often. Uh, So we've really got to look at something for renters. Now, we would think that where we're paying vast amounts of money into people to assist them to develop affordable housing, if that's what we're doing, or to increase their own wealth, then that should come at a cost. It's coming at a great public cost. So there should be some conditionality on it for those people. And we would say that any rental property should have a requirement of accessibility. We would argue that, um, you know, we're talking about good tenancy. We're not talking about the, the tenants from hell. But where you've got those, there should be long leases that it is difficult for the landlord to break if the tenant is paying their rent. Rent and, and behaving themselves. 
And we need to make sure that those those rental homes are fit workplaces for those community aged care workers. So, you know, there's a lot around that that renting area. Now, those are massive areas that that's that's coming into the whole idea of tax policy. But as I say, we put icing on the cake, which might, we might call the, the women's safety initiatives or the um, the mental health, but it's meaningless if people have insecure or worse no housing. Um, that icing doesn't sit on anything. John, what are your thoughts on on these issues around housing affordability? I completely agree with uh, with Casey's observations. Insecure housing and insecure work kind of go hand in hand, don't they? You know, if you haven't got a secure job, it's very hard to secure a tenancy, let alone a mortgage. That is a really important part of the puzzle. And of course, you know, if you don't have uh, secure housing, it's very hard to get or to maintain employment or indeed education, uh, you know, make, makes life very hard uh, as far as education is concerned, not only for children, but for adults. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, without housing, without secure, uh, safe and appropriate housing, um, you know, it's very hard to take care of, uh, to have one's health needs tended to properly. So, you know, it's absolutely a bedrock for that architecture of fairness that uh, that uh, you know we spoke of earlier. That uh, you know if we don't get housing right, we can't get anything else right. The incentives are there at the moment, uh, sadly, to really encourage the perpetuation of housing as a speculative sport instead of a human right, and that's where our problem lies uh, in large part. So, you know. Government can play a significant role in using a number of levers to uh, reverse that kind of incentive that drives prices up, not only for for buyers, but for renters. And uh, that can be turned around in very achievable and reasonable ways. But also, of course, we need a massive, a massive uh, investment in more social housing, in public and community housing. Without that, we are going to see profound problems existing in the in the very heart of our society. Another area that I, I'd just like to allude to briefly, because it's 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 a, an area of growing concern as I speak with people, is the explosion of of Airbnb, that kind of form of the use of housing, whilst being very convenient and uh, you know a lot of people who are using it indeed rave about it as far as holidays are concerned, but the net effect is quite deleterious uh, in many places on affordable rentals being available. So, you know, I think for a start, we would love to see, and I'm sure Casey uh, and I are on a unity ticket on this one, we would (laughs) love to see a national housing, uh, a vision for national housing policy and framework, which, you know, that would be a, a great place to start just to see a federal government saying, you know, we don't hold all of the levers. You know, many, many of the levers are in the hands of state and even local government jurisdictions, but federal government has an incredibly powerful role to play in creating that a, a different kind of framework, a different kind of way of viewing housing primarily as a, as a form of shelter, place to call home. 
It's a really interesting analogy, this idea of paying attention to the icing without having the cake and that there are some really core things that we need for human well-being. We need somewhere safe to live. Uh, it's preferably somewhere enjoyable to live. And, and we, we often benefit from having something meaningful to do with our time. And we did go through quite a bit of this when we spoke with Millie Rooney last week about Australia Remade's report on the public good. And again, I'd probably recommend that that report for, for reading. But another element that comes up in that report and a core part of our conversation today would be the other thing in need of structural change identified by ACOS, which is how we address poverty. Ensuring that people are free from poverty is surely one of the most basic elements of care on a societal level. And I know it's something that's close to my co-host Sharon's heart as well. So I'd actually like to start with you, Sharon, in terms of what you've seen in this budget, but also in policymaking in Australia in recent years, are we heading in the right direction for poverty reduction? And if not, what needs to change? Anna Greta, thanks for, for giving me the, the chance to respond to that. And I could just say, no, we're <laughs> absolutely not heading in the right direction. But I'll take the opportunity of being on the, the other side of the mic to say a little bit more. And I'll talk particularly about child poverty, which is the area that I work on. And perhaps just to go back a little bit into history, because it is possible to address child poverty. We saw a decline in child poverty in Australia during the Hawke-Keating governments from the late 1980s, and that was mainly because of reforms to the benefits that were available to families with children. And at that time, Australia was seen internationally as a leader in dealing with child and family poverty, and we were seen as having really progressive policies around allowances and tax benefits. And child poverty continued to decline from the late 1990s into the early 2000s. But then we saw things shift and we've seen this steady increase from that point in child poverty. And that's because of lower benefits, of the conditionalities that have been imposed on sole parents in particular, and on changes to family tax benefits for low-income families. And so we've seen policies that have actually increased child poverty. If we think about the, the data that we have just before the pandemic, one in six children in Australia were living in poverty at the same time as Credit Suisse was ranking us as the wealthiest country on earth. So, you know, we've got some real inequities there. And Casey talked about, I think she called it that beautiful accidental experiment that we saw in 2020. And we saw that by increasing working age benefits, we could immediately make a real difference to child poverty. But we then took a policy decision or a policy decision was taken to reduce working age benefits back to below what is an agreed, if not an official poverty line. And so even when a policy clearly worked to reduce income poverty and reduce child poverty, the approach was short-termism and a disinclination on the part of the government to even engage in debate. And we've also seen very harsh conditionality and narratives of blame and stigma. And we, we don't even begin to think about the way in which income poverty prevents children from having opportunities to thrive and the way it undermines relationships despite their parents' best efforts to care for them. And I'm sick of hearing 10-year-olds talking about the stress that they feel because of housing insecurity. So we're a long way from getting it right. And we could change these things very quickly through higher minimum wages, increases to benefits and greater stocks of social housing, and by shifting the narratives from individual blame to addressing systemic failures. 
Mm, no, absolutely. I think that that we have to all remember that experiment of 2020 and the extraordinary benefits that we saw across society, particularly for those in positions of precarity. John Fausen, poverty, do you think we should pay more attention? <laughs> uh, look, I, I think it's almost superfluous for me to try and add anything to uh, to what Sharon has said. Uh, you know, you've put it so beautifully and, and powerfully, Sharon, just to say yes. If we do nothing, what does that say about us as a society? But as Sharon said, it's worse than us doing nothing. We have actually, as a society, been proactive in making poverty worse, uh, you know, which is just, it just beggars belief. But, you know, we need to look at the piece, the, you know, the, the interconnectedness of, of these kinds of decisions. And really uh, what we're talking about at base is a difference between um, philosophies regarding the role of government, if, if I could put it that way. So if we accept that the role of government really is to be the means by which we can achieve collectively what we cannot necessarily achieve by ourselves. If we see government as, you know, having the responsibility to fulfil the dreams, the aspirations of the many rather than catering to the uh, you know, demands of, of the already wealthy few, that's one way of looking at, at the role of government. And if you look at it that way, then government will play an active role in ensuring that people are not living below the poverty line, whether they're in paid work or not, you know, that's in many ways irrelevant. Uh, you, know, you, you, you shouldn't sort of say these people deserve to be in poverty and these people don't. That's just, it just, that's just a deeply dehumanising and degrading attitude. The other way of looking at the role of government is, of course, that neoliberal frame which sort of says, well, the role of government, you know, they, they might say the role of government is to get out of the way, but what they really mean is that the role of government is to uh, is to do all it can to support the major owners of capital. To do that, to provide uh, you know, massive tax cuts to those who don't need them, to provide subsidies and to provide that kind of um, you know, support to uh, keep wages low and all of those things, it also means denuding our social infrastructure and that's really uh, you know, what we have seen, that dismantling of the public sphere along with the atomization of, of uh, working people. It's no surprise to me, sadly, that we are at this juncture uh, where it's abundantly clear there is so much we can do to prevent poverty and it's really not that complicated. You know, the bottom line is, you know, as, as we saw with you know, what Casey referred to as that experiment, if you, if you give people greater level of income support, uh, life changes immediately. You know, just it's just you know not rocket science. But the other side, of course, is the importance of that public infrastructure, so that people don't have to purchase everything that is essential. Uh, and and uh, housing, of course, is a you know excellent case in point. Uh, education, health, and one of the things that was disappointing in this budget, of course, was also something that uh, you know many didn't notice and that was a cut to public school funding by $559 million over the next three years. Just crazy stuff. So 
if, if we're looking at poverty, we should look beyond poverty and just say, well, what does, what, how is this symptomatic of the way we have organised the economy and the way we conceptualise the role of government? Can I jump in on the back of, of John? Um, and yes, I did want to say initially that, yeah, I can't add anything to what, what Sharon was saying, but I think there's a couple of things. We, or I constantly hear that um, poverty is a wicked problem. And I just wanted to really hammer that home. It ain't. It really ain't. Poverty is about lack of money, so put money into it. The results of poverty, and particularly intergenerational poverty, are wicked problems, but it's quite a simple solution. Um, and I think we really, you know, it just, it's made me feel very ashamed standing here talking because it really does bring it home that we could do something about poverty and we choose not to as a community, but not only that, but we demonise the people who are in poverty. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we really do have that conversation. But I think it is worth reflecting on the fact that when we did double job seeker, the sky did not fall in. People didn't all go surfing. Uh, you know, people still wanted to, to look at jobs. And we've got some research we did, um, you know, with a fairly large group of people that said, you know, if you had a permanent basic income, what would you do? You know, and we, we basically did give them options like go surfing, but most people, vast majorities of people, um, told us that they would spend more time with their holiday. Sorry, with their family. Um, they would um, spend more time caring. They would do training, uh, so they would invest in themselves, and they would save money for future difference. You know, for future. Um, uh, things happening. But one of the things I did just want to mention, one of the things we hear, and, and Sharon, you talked about that thing of child poverty and hearing children, 10-year-olds worried about um, housing. One of the things I hear too many times, it's too common a story, is parents telling me that their kids miss out on school for two or three days a fortnight because when they're approaching payday, um, they, there isn't enough money to put something that they could take to school in the lunchbox. And they're a shame involved in that. And so those kids stay home on those days. I think it would be very interesting for any of us to map social mobility, because I suspect that we have reached a peak and that we are very much going um, downhill in those terms and that those children it appears it, it me to say so, but I, you know, I find it very hard to imagine what kind of change we're going to have to make to, um, you know, what kind of change in attitude we're going to have to have to get them back out in that situation. There is a lot of work ahead of us when we think about some of these issues, but I think what's always striking to me is, is, as you said, Casey, these are not wicked problems in terms of being able to respond to poverty. There are things we could do immediately. Um, as we, we start to draw to an end this conversation that, that I would rather like to continue for another three or four hours, I did want to move to beyond the budget to something that I've been thinking a lot about over the last 48 hours or so and, and has really been bothering me. And that is the claims that the current government has consistently channeled funding to Liberal or national seats. We've, we've heard that over time, but just recently Catherine Cusack resigned because flood relief was being provided to an electorate held by the nationals and, and flood relief was being withheld um, from Labor-held electorates. 
I don't necessarily want to ask you on the specifics of this, but I did want to hear your thoughts on how we start to shift from what really are the toxic politics of distribution to ensuring that care and the infrastructure of care are provided to all and as a first priority to those who are in greatest need. Um, John, would you like to, to kick off on that? Yeah, I, I, you know, this is just, uh, you know, horrific stuff but should come as no surprise, sadly. And I think it boils down to um, what was the, the, that term you used on, on, uh, distrib- on um, distribution, Sharon? That was a... The, the toxic politics of distribution. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a great phrase, the, to- the toxic You're going politics. to see that, Sharon, in one of John's iambic pentameters <laughs> in a poem <laughs> into the future. I tell you what, with, I would love with, that. Very powerful. With appropriate attribution, Sharon. Um, <laughs> it's yours, John. Um, no, no, it belongs to the people. So, uh, yeah, that, that toxic politics of, of distribution should be completely transformed and turned on its head uh, into, uh, you know, a, a, a politics of embrace uh, for all people, you know, uh, instead of that that um, that toxic politics of, of distribution. Of course, distribution is at the very heart of of what makes a fair society. Is uh, you know to have that kind of allocatory mechanism that is divorced from uh, market mechanisms uh, and really you know severs the ties between what's in your pocket. And, uh, and what you are able to access. Uh, so, you know, we, we need to reconceptualize all these forms of support, whether it's flood relief or, um, income support, social security payments. So, you know, um, we need to, to stop thinking about them as if they were gratuities to be dispensed, you know, as, as largesse. Uh, you know, this is just, Completely at odds uh, with reality. The, these are publicly owned resources that belong to the public, belong to the people. And we should ensure, no matter who's in government, that the people who need support, uh, whether it's temporary support uh, or long term, that, uh, you know, we get what we need. We need to know, you know, the, the bottom line is this. We need to be able to get up in the morning and know that the government's got our back, uh, you know, for for whatever uh, circumstances we are in. Casey, what are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm probably going to go a little bit bigger and a little bit more um, amorphous. We've just published something early this year called Five Ideas Australia Needs Now. We talked about a permanent basic income. We talked about, um, you know, a jobs guarantee, those kind of ideas. But the last idea or the first idea uh, was about leadership, about governing for all. Uh, and the sense that that, it, that we can't expect our government to govern for all, that it's become such a cynical exercise and that we all actually think, you know, oh, yeah, that's what governments do. I think we all need to actually take responsibility and say that's not what governments do and we need to hold our politicians um, responsible, you know, for that. And we also need to say they are of us. We put them there and we need to take responsibility to keep on talking to them and to make sure that they do meet our needs. 
Yeah, we've seen this incredible individualization of risk. So whatever the risk is, whether it's that you're in the, the wrong flood zone or, um, you know, in the wrong industry or whatever, that is your fault and you will pay for that. That ain't what most of us signed up for, I don't think. But I think we do need to re-grasp this. We need to think about leadership. We need to think about democracy. Um, we need to make sure that we take responsibility and get the, the, the leaders that we deserve. Because I, I suspect at the moment it's a bit of a race to the bottom. We are getting the leaders that we deserve because most people will tell you they're all the same. It doesn't matter. We need to take more responsibility than that. Mm. There's some really, really powerful points in that. I just wanted to bring it back to the, the theme that we have for our mini series on valuing care. Um, and valuing care, I think, has been throughout the conversation we've had reflecting, particularly, unfortunately, on, on the pitfalls of, of this most recent, um, government's budget. But I wanted from John and from Casey, if you can offer us a single line, uh, tying in your one piece of advice to how we might put care at the center of policymaking in Australia. John? If we want to uh, build an architecture of fairness, then we need to acknowledge that each of us, uh, we, we all need help from each other. Uh, so care isn't isn't something that uh, you know belongs to uh, is is um, is something confined to a few. We all need that that sense of being cared for and to have that ability to uh, to care for others. I'd like to conceptualise care as a, as a form of liberation, uh, that care should be liberating and liberation for ourselves and for each other uh, you know, should uh, really manifest itself through that ethics and practice of care. Casey, what are your thoughts on how we tie care into government policy? Uh, very similar to John, it should be at the very centre of this. It is the basic central component of humanity. We are social animals. We would not survive on our own. Uh, and humans are the, you know, the building blocks of society. It's not something that's given and taken. It's part of the social construct and contract. And we need to recognise too, of course, that, you know, Rich people have care too. It's just that we give them tax benefits to pay for it. So it's there for everyone. And it's actually a beautiful thing to give and to receive. Uh, so we, you know, we just need to make sure that we are the people who are skilled at that and have that aptitude are, um, I guess, you know, rewarded for doing that suitably and that we don't make them, um, the, the, the next generation of poor. So yeah, absolutely. It's what makes us human. And we need to recognise that in our societies. John and Casey, thank you so much for a great discussion today of the recent Australian budget and your thoughts on caring. I'm sure we will look forward to hearing more from you in the future, but thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again. Great conversation. So, Sharon, that was such a remarkable conversation. And I really do think that the theme of caring as a technique to analyse and approach the federal government helps me to make sense of why this particular budget left me feeling so empty and so concerned. How did you find today's conversation? Oh, look, I love that conversation. I always love talking with John and Casey. They're, they're such deep thinkers about these issues. I, I really love them because they're actors as well. You know, they, they're people that actually go out into the world and aim to make change. And that's always inspirational. Um, but yeah, like you, this budget and many of the policy debates that we have been having in Australia over the past 
few years really have left me with that feeling of emptiness. And I think you're right. It's because we haven't got a soul to the policy decisions that we're making. We don't have that guiding principle, or as, as you put it so beautifully, Anna Greta, you know, a, a compass to guide us. And I think care starts to give us that. And yes, for me too, it made a lot of sense of why I think the budget has been met, not just by you and I, but by many people with a little bit of disillusionment um, and a little bit of disappointment. So on the optimistic side, I think the other thing we can hear from the conversation with John and Casey is that the solutions are there. We know that they work. We know that we can put these uh, different approaches in place. You, you get this sense that if we do use a, a value approach, uh, using the valuing of care as a guide, as the compass, as, as a place to take us to uh, a better place, for a better future, particularly for Australia, that our policy approach could could have the the integrity and the depth that cre- really does create a better world for all of us. Um, we didn't get to touch much on the environment and that third layer that you mentioned in the introduction. I'm sure that our regular listeners will understand that there's not a lot to say about things like climate change on the basis of the federal government because it was largely absent. Similarly, funding for the arts and for our cultural heritage in Australia, which is so tremendously important as we recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Again, a relative silence in the budget and something that we haven't commented on today. But I am filled with inspiration and hope uh, by listening to John and Casey because I can see that we have got opportunities for significant change with some changes to our approach seen through a lens and a prism of caring. I think that's right, Anna Greta. And I, I think the other thing that came across so powerfully in that conversation is that there are solutions to these problems. These problems, as Casey said, um, are not so wicked that we can't resolve them. You know, there are solutions. It's just about thinking differently, thinking creatively, and thinking with care. And we will find those solutions. Absolutely. And Anna Greta, it was a pretty heavy conversation today in some places, but I did just want to share with our listeners that there was a little bit of lightheartedness in the background. We had set out a challenge to to Casey and John. Now, John is a poet. We we put out the challenge, could anyone slip the term iambic pentameter into the conversation? And Casey nailed it. So listeners, if you have to go back over the pod, do so to see if you can pick up when Casey managed to slip that reference in. Absolutely. Full full points to Casey Chambers. She's definitely welcome to come back. Extraordinary work there. Absolutely. And and I just wanted to 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 say to all our listeners, you know, we are in the middle of Ramadan. We're approaching Easter. Um, for people who who celebrate and uh, those very important points on the calendar and who use them as times of reflection, I hope that these conversations we're having about care um, helps you with those reflections and I wish people all the best um, as they are celebrating both Ramadan and um, and Easter. Mm, absolutely. I'll join you in that. It is an important time for us all to consider caring. So, listeners, we'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes on policyforum.net, and we do thank you again and always for listening to us. You can join our Facebook group by typing Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, and there you'll find some great active conversations, interesting discussions about our series, as well as conversation about Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny and the National Security Podcast. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. 
We will be taking a little bit of a break over the Easter holiday period, so no episode planned for next week, but we will be back in a fortnight uh, with more on our mini-series of care. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, have a lovely break and I'll see you in a week or so. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. <laughs>